0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a key strategy to decarbonize and revitalize all sectors of our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification Policy with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, Accelerating Clean Electrified Transportation and a Clean Grid, Part 2 in our three-part series. On the last episode, we discussed the findings from the landmark 2035 2.0 Transportation Electrification Report from the University of California, Berkeley, Energy Innovation, and Grid Lab. The analysis showed that achieving 100% EV sales supported by a 90% clean grid by the year 2035 would bring widespread benefits to consumers, the economy, and the climate, all without compromising grid reliability or affordability. During the months of April and May, there's been a flurry of federal policy activity as well as some exciting announcements from the private sector, including the announcement of the Ford F-150 Lightning and GM's plans to build an all-electric fleet by 2035 and phase out gas and diesel engines. Today, we're going to explore what's needed from a policy standpoint to get there, to accelerate the U.S. electric vehicle market while also achieving a largely carbon-free grid in the next 10 to 15 years. With me today to explore the exciting world of transportation electrification and clean electricity policy are two policy experts. First, we have Kelly Fleming. She's the policy director for the Zero Emission Transportation Association, or ZETA. She was previously a research and policy analyst at the Policy Institute for Energy, Environment, and the Economy at UC Davis. And prior to that... Kelly received the AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellowship, serving for the Department of Energy. She holds an MS and PhD from the University of Washington and BS from the Colorado School of Mines, all in chemical engineering. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Happy to be here. And next we have Michael Boyle, Director of Electricity Policy at Energy Innovation and a colleague of mine. Mike directs the firm's Power Sector Transformation Program and works with policymakers, advocates, and regulators to advance policy and technology solutions for a clean, reliable, and affordable U.S. electricity system. Mike has led and co-authored a number of foundational reports, including most recently the coal cost crossover 2.0, the 2035 2.0 policy report, of which I was a co-author, and the 2030 report, Powering America's Clean Economy, among many others. Mike graduated cum laude from Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, where he focused on energy and international law. He also holds a B.A. from Vanderbilt University. Welcome to the show, Mike.
1: Great to be here, Sarah.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have both of you join me today, and I am excited to be able to fully nerd out on policy uh, and do a deeper dive into the follow-on from last episode, Uh, really trying to better understand the federal and state policy dynamics that are playing out in real time, shaping so much of our transportation sector as well as our electricity sector. So, Kelly, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I'll have you first tell us a little bit more about Zeta and the work that you do there. And then have you talk a little bit about the key federal policies and regulatory actions that you guys are working on to accelerate uh, towards an all-electric transportation future.
2: Sure, thank you. Um, So, Zeta was founded uh, last year um, and went live right after the 2020 election. Um, We are a a nonprofit industry coalition. So we have, um, I think, over 57 members at this point and growing. Um, And we represent the entire supply chain of an electric vehicle. So we have mining companies that mine the critical minerals for batteries. We have battery recycling companies. Uh, We have the charging equipment manufacturers Um, vehicle manufacturers and utility companies, charging companies, anything related to electric vehicles. And even we have a few electric uh, boat companies now. Um, They can be members of of the Zero Emission Transportation Association, or Zeta. Um, We are advocating for 100% EV sales by the year 2030, which we realize is a bit ambitious. Um, That includes Light, medium and heavy duty vehicles. Um, and we have a policy platform which you can find on our website that has six different policy pillars. Um, so those are the key federal policies that we are looking at. So those those pillars are light duty, EV consumer uh, incentives, medium and heavy duty electrification, uh, national charging initiative, uh, domestic manufacturing, performance and emission standards, and federal leadership. Those are the six. And within those, we have about 36 policies we've listed that we are actively advocating for, and some of those are congressional um, legislation, and some of those can be done by executive order. Um, But overall, uh, we really want to bolster more of the incentives and uh, make the United States a leader in fleet electrification and manufacturing.
0: (laughs) That's great. And are you guys primarily focused at the federal level, or do you also work in state forums as well?
2: Right now, we are just federal. We might eventually expand to the state level, uh, but but we're a pretty small team at the moment, um, so we are completely focused at the federal level. Uh, we do have some stakeholder um, allies, I guess you could call them, or organizations working more on the state level. And we have conversations with them, but we're not actively advocating at the state level.
0: Great. Well, there's certainly enough to keep you all busy uh, at the federal level right now. Uh, Let's dig into that a little bit. Of the pillars you mentioned and the 30-some-odd policy and regulatory and executive order actions, which do you guys see as most feasible in the near term given dynamics in Washington, D.C. and given some of the um, challenges historically in transitioning the transportation sector to clean and electric?
2: That's a great question because they don't necessarily align. Um, right now, specifically in Congress, uh, it requires 60 votes to move anything Uh onto the floor for a vote because of the filibuster with the exception of bills that are considered budgetary. So if you if you hear in the news them talking about Congress trying to move things through reconciliation, that means it is a budget-related bill and they're putting them into that so that we can pass it with 50 votes instead of 60. Um, so with that in mind, the bills that are currently uh, being formulated and evolving that could probably pass at least somewhat through through that reconciliation Um, The biggest one was uh, there was a hearing last week on it called the Clean Energy for America Act. Um, So it has advanced through the committee in the Senate um, to the floor. And there's a a House companion hearing on it this week. Um, Those bills are extending and expanding the consumer tax incentive that we refer to as the 30D incentive. um, And that's the credit that you're probably familiar with. That's a $7,500 Um, credit right now, and it phases out once one of the manufacturers hits a sales of $200,000. So the reform in that bill is to to get rid of that manufacturer's cap and then to um, extend it until sales are above 50% in the United States for zero emission vehicles. Um, There's a few other things they've done to that incentive uh, to really expand it and encourage domestic manufacturing. So there was an amendment that Senator Stabenow added on um, that would add an additional $2,500 to that for vehicles that are uh, manufactured in the United States and an additional 2,500 if they are unionized companies. So that would bring the maximum total up to 12,500 at the federal level. And that's in addition to any state incentives that you get. Um, That would go until 2025 and then come back down to the 7,500 baseline and all vehicles would have to be made in the United States to get that credit after 2025. Um, There's another part of that 30D that they added on for commercial vehicles in the medium and heavy duty space, which is great. That would be a 30% um, investment tax credit that would cover the upfront cost or the difference between the um, comparable gas-powered vehicle to the EV, so whichever of those is less. Um, In addition, they wanted to combat some of the um, concerns that these incentives are mostly going to high-income people by putting in an $80,000 sales price cap in order to receive these um, incentives, and that's in line with research that has shown that consumers of the highest income who are buying luxury vehicles like the Tesla Model X are not very sensitive to the incentive. They're not buying these cars because there's a $7,500 incentive on it. So um, those are those are the big ones that we're currently focused on because they're going through Congress, and I think they have a good chance of passing reconciliation. Um, there are a few other incentives for charging infrastructure. I won't get too into the weeds on those, but um, happy to. Talk more (laughs) if you're
0: interested. Well, it just so happens I am interested, actually. If you can, yeah, talk a little bit about the infrastructure piece. Obviously, this was a central focal point of the American Jobs Plan, President Biden uh, put forward not long ago, and there was a heavy emphasis on all manner of infrastructure, including uh, EV charging. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about what different legislative pathways exist or and or seem promising to encourage uh, the build-out of charging infrastructure, which we've known for a while is, is one of the biggest barriers to widespread electrification.
2: Sure. So the same bill that I just mentioned, the Clean Energy for America Act, um, it also reforms the what we call 30C. So there's 30D and 30C. It can be a little confusing. 30C is for charging. That's how I remember it, C for charging. Um, that one... Uh, is also in line with our recommendations on our website. Uh, so the 30000 cap per location was replaced with a two thousand two dollars cap per charger. And that's because DC fast chargers, direct current fast chargers, which are the ones that charge your vehicle uh, in under a half an hour usually, um, as opposed to level two, which is what you would find in a residential area. They're very expensive uh, to install. Um, so the the current tax incentive was designed without that in mind because they didn't really exist yet. So it, it also extended this credit until greenhouse gas emissions are reduced 25% of 2021 levels. Um, this is unlikely to happen before 2040. So uh, hopefully that will stay in place until we need it. Um, until we no longer need it. There's also the surface transportation bill that was unanimously passed by uh, by the Senate committee last week, which is saying something because it was completely bipartisan. There was zero votes against it. Um, this bill, it was pretty light on funding, um, but it is just a starting point. So it set aside uh, $1.25 billion for highway alternative dual corridors. So that could be charging infrastructure. Um, it also set aside $1.25 billion for community-based, uh, electric vehicle infrastructure, which is charging equipment. Um, and we we imagine there will be more set aside in the budget that the president requested. Um, you can find a lot more in there for specifically charging uh, over each year.
0: That's that's great. And so, yeah, really thrilled to hear there was a piece of legislation that was able to get uh, widespread bipartisan support and pass the Senate. That is huge. Um, so it sounds like uh, based on kind of working within the constraints of this reconciliation process and, you know, the lack of the 60 votes on other things that may be more contentious or have more of a challenge, the focus really is on incentives for vehicles, incentives for chargers, and then allocation of um, resources for likely to, you know likely resources that would go through Department of Transportation or Department of Energy uh, to support fuel cor- uh, alternative fuel corridors and charging infrastructure in communities. And you know I would say that would that's a really great start to the broader suite of policies that are needed to really jumpstart electric vehicles. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, I think it's really encouraging. Um, We've found that carrot policies tend to be more bipartisan supported than uh, stick policies. Um, so policies that are incentivizing more more adoption of electric vehicles um, have more bipartisan support in Congress. Um, there's also some areas to work together when it comes to uh critical minerals and domestic supply chain that can be more supported by Republicans. Um, The unfortunate news is that because Biden has made this somewhat of his um, main issue in, in a lot of the American jobs plan that Republicans have kind of decided that they can't, can't support it because it's something that um, would give the Biden administration a victory. So we're kind of working to uh, highlight why this will help to create domestic jobs, create good paying union jobs and um, really position the United States to be a global competitor rather than um, sitting on the sidelines basically while countries like China and countries in Europe are passing us by and manufacturing these vehicles that will be adopted whether or not we're the ones making them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, really important and uh, glad you guys are up there sharing that message. And um, I want to transition to Mike because the other big part of this transportation electrification push is, of course, the hope and assumption that the grid powering a more electric fleet and vehicles is going to be cleaner than it is today. And it's imperative that it is in order to meet climate goals and reduce other pollutants you've been working a lot on a clean energy standard, and this was also a central feature of President Biden's American Jobs Plan and his uh, climate plans. So I'm going to have you tell us a little bit more about what a clean energy standard is and why it matters to this transportation electrification discussion we're having.
1: Sure. So uh, a clean electricity standard Um, I would say has four sort of defining characteristics. The first one is that it creates a binding obligation on electric utilities, um, the electricity companies that sell electricity to provide some share of their electricity sales um, as clean. Um, And that usually is a percentage of, of the total uh, and there tend to be interim targets that sort of ramp up uh, to get to the final target that's part of the legislation. Um, the second thing is that clean energy standard or electricity standard defines what te- technologies qualify as clean or renewable. Uh, some of them are, or the most common form of these are renewable portfolio standards, uh, which are state-level policies that exist in some capacity in about 30 states in the U.S., Um, but the definition has been broadened to clean uh, so that we can set standards um, that are technology-neutral and define qualifying uh, resources as zero-carbon, typically, um, taking into account that you know, we know we can add a lot of renewable energy to the grid without, um, creating reliability issues. But we also know that just using wind, solar, and batteries is unlikely to sort of provide a a reliable, dependable grid. Um, once you start approaching, say hundred percent, you need a complementary suite of technologies. And there's a lot of good reasons to keep, say, existing hydro, existing nuclear around for that. Um, also, uh, the third one uh, is that clean electricity standards, they they generate clean electricity certificates um, or CECs, um, which are generally tradable um, between utilities. So that one utility that may have a really uh, short list of options to get cost-effective clean energy might be able to buy them from somewhere else. And that creates a kind of economic efficiency in compliance uh, and then finally, there's an enforcement mechanism called alternative compliance payments, which is essentially a penalty for utilities that fall short. So if you miss the standard, uh, there's typically some specified dollars per megawatt hour that the utilities have to pay, kind of like a tax. Um, and often that goes toward um, future procurement of clean energy or a customer refund or, or some some other program uh, that's complementary to the, C, uh, the CES So that's what a CES is, Um, and as you say, it's the central part of President Biden's American Jobs Plan. He campaigned on 100% clean electricity by 2035, and as far as I can tell, that's still the position of the Biden administration. um, That that's ultimately the policy that they're promoting and want to pursue. And I will note: I think the House passed a bill a couple months ago that attempts to enshrine that goal in legislation. Although, as Kelly uh, said about, you know, policy on the transportation side, um, getting 60 votes in the Senate for uh, a stringent federal clean electricity standard is also difficult. Uh, And so there's a lot of conversation right now about can we do something that's budget-based or reconciliation-based to try to thread the political needle and take advantage of the slim majority that Democrats have in in Congress.
0: Great. That's really helpful. And I'm... I'm sure there are a lot more details around how, if there were to be a federal clean electricity standard, how that would be implemented at the state and utility level, because obviously states have jurisdiction over their utilities and utilities uh, have jurisdiction over their service territories. So, uh, you know, presumably there would be a kind of a trickle down protocol, uh, have have details along those lines been fleshed out at this point, or are we still just working primarily to get the thing passed and then the details will be worked out through some sort of rulemaking or regulatory mechanism?
1: Yeah, I, I haven't seen a proposal where those details are fleshed out per se. Um, You know, ultimately the implementation of a federal standard would fall to state public utility commissions in, in some regard, you know, whether it's approving utility procurements of, of clean electricity um, or whatever plan they have for compliance, um, you know, it's it's still kind of an open question. Uh, does this program, if implemented, does it flow through the Department of Energy? You know, there is probably a parallel track where enforcement of it could go through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. There are pros and cons kind of of, e- of each approach. Um, one of the other questions uh, is, you know, what do you do when a utility already has, say, 80 percent clean energy because they've got a ton of nuclear and hydro versus another utility that might have two percent clean energy because they are really heavily invested in coal and natural gas? Um, you know, there are different ways of of designing and structuring a clean energy standard. Um, I think the job of the federal government is going to be to sort of set the framework, set the standard, but to the degree possible, you know, leave it to, to states and utility regulators to implement that, uh, standard at least cost.
0: Absolutely. And that would be the most prudent approach as well. Um, Energy Innovation recently released an analysis in partnership with GridLab and UC Berkeley that examined the impacts of achieving an 80% clean electricity standard by 2030 uh, with an eye to the near-term deadline or timeline versus the longer-term 100% goal. What were some of the key findings from that analysis?
1: Sure thing. Um, So it's worth noting kind of why we decided to analyze 80% clean by 2030, um, this question of whether and how we can do or accomplish a clean electricity standard at the federal level, um, does end up, I think politically hinging on reconciliation and the reconciliation window, um, is 10 years. So any, any, uh, budget reconciliation measure uh, sort of is limited to having a 10-year impact on the budget. And so um, what we can accomplish by 2030 as an interim goal becomes really crucial for getting on track to achieving President Biden's goal of 100% clean electricity by 2035. So that's kind of how you can think about the relevance of this interim target. Um, We also know there's, there's a lot of there's kind of a live discussion in policy circles and academia about, you know, what, what is the suite of technologies that gets us to a hundred percent clean electricity system? And, and there is a sort of uncertainty space around um, the technologies we'll need to develop or whether they're available and at what cost to get from say 80 to 90% clean where the solution space is fairly clear with existing technologies to that hundred percent space. So we also, when we do these studies, we have picked targets that we think are achievable with existing technologies and kind of leaving some of that um, uncertain solution space, you know, for a different discussion so that we can get down to brass tacks about what we can do today and what's it going to cost and what's it going to take without uh, extraordinary assumptions about future technology development, you know, that sort of stand on maybe a little bit more tenuous ground. So, mm-hmm. um, that's one way to think about where the study sits. So, um, the first finding of the study was that, you know, even as clean electricity resources, wind, solar, batteries have fallen really dramatically in cost over the last 10 years, like solar by 90% batteries by a similar amount, uh, and wind by about 70%. We still need a clean electricity standard to lock in, um, the carbon emissions reductions that are now possible at a low cost from these resources, because without that policy, we're going to see continued burning of coal, continued expansion of natural gas use in the United States. Um, so, strong policy is required to create an 80% clean grid by 2030. Um, the second finding is that the grid is dependable without any of the existing coal plants, so you can retire all existing coal and also not build any new natural gas plants um, and still operate the grid uh, dependably. So meeting so meeting demand with adequate supply in every hour of every year for seven years. Um, and that's even with significant electricity demand from transportation electrification. So achieving actually um, Zeta's goal of 100% electric vehicle sales by 2030 and 100% medium and heavy duty vehicles being electric by 2035, um, which I think you discussed on the last episode of this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the next finding is that electricity costs do not increase from today's costs. Um, and if you take into account the public health and climate benefits, the costs are actually 31% lower in 2030 than business as usual. Um, and that's $1.7 trillion in avoided health and environmental damages, including 93,000 premature deaths through 2050. Um, I've gone on for a long time. The kind of last big finding is that the grid, uh, that policy, the 80% CES would drive significant investment in all U S regions. So it would drive about $1.5 trillion in new clean energy capital investments and another hundred billion in transmission investments. And those are widely spread across the country. Um, and in our report, we have an interactive or, uh, a map of kind of where those investments occur and you can see it's happening in just about every state
0: that's great well I definitely would encourage listeners to uh, take a gander at that report it will be linked with the show notes and um, you know share that information with your congressman or woman and senator to uh, let them know that this is a, a ripe opportunity for the United States to clean up our grid but also stimulate a lot of um, benefits for public health and the economy and the climate um, thank you, Mike. That's a really helpful summary. Kelly, I want to shift back to you to dig in a little bit more on the the role that some of these federal agencies that touch transportation play in enabling the transition to electric vehicles. I know you guys are really focused on legislation and the federal policy play. But, of course, as you mentioned at the outset of the show, uh, through executive order, of course, Biden... Uh, President Biden is directing his uh, head of agencies to uh, the various secretaries to go full speed ahead on a number of fronts. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the role that EPA will play and or is playing in this transition to EVs? And if you can also touch on the uh, Department of Transportation and the Department of Energy, the three big ones.
2: Sure. Um, and I'll state up there, I'm much more familiar with Department of Energy because I used to work there. <laughs> um, but I'll, so to so start with EPA, um, they do more of the regulations and air quality management. Um, however, I think that all three of these organizations, and I'm sure they are doing this under the Biden administration, uh, need to be working together to coordinate their plans and utilize each other's different roles uh, to basically expand into a greater scope of how to electrify transportation. So EPA can utilize uh, proposed rulemaking regulations, air quality assessments, uh, that kind of thing, which is more of the stick model. Um, In DOE, the Department of Energy, their biggest strength is the research that they do and the national lab system. So uh, even in the last administration, they've laid the groundwork for causing these battery prices to fall dramatically. Um, And they've also already modeled out where and how and what type of EV infrastructure we need, depending on use case and scenario. So utilizing those findings, um, giving that information to cities and states, um, as well as sharing it with the Department of Transportation, where they're giving grants to cities and states to build out these infrastructures, I think is where uh, that synergy would be really benefit for the electrification. Um, they've also done studies on grid impacts and uh, how to make the the most use of electric vehicle charging infrastructure. So how to um, you know utilize vehicle to grid uh, capabilities to really help bolster um, our grid resiliency. And they're continuing to do research on that. So funding those departments. Um, which is one of the things that is in the newly released budget. Uh, it proposes increased funding to all of those programs, especially at the Department of Energy. I think it's a 50% increase for uh, sustainable transportation offices. Um, and then uh, utilizing that grant money for building out charging infrastructure as well as incentive programs. Um, they also, in the, in the proposed budget, uh, set aside money for medium and heavy-duty vehicle incentives, um, as well as uh, fast charging for highway corridors. That's great. Yeah.
0: One other thing that we called out in our 2035 2.0 companion policy report is the opportunity for the, the Department of Energy and Department of Transportation to sync up and coordinate on the various Charging infrastructure plans and how to really streamline the corridors. We got a kind of a jump start on the alternative charging corridors, and then it kind of went latent. So bringing that back to life and really invigorating that, I think, would go a long way in giving uh, consumers the confidence they need to buy an EV and take it on a journey across country or, you know, further than just their neighborhood, uh, and making sure that they have the charging infrastructure needed to support their travel needs, and certainly for the medium and heavy duty, that's going to be critical. Um, but also leveraging the lessons learned from the numerous Department of Energy programs that have been around for uh, over, over two decades, probably longer, uh, focused on solar and storage and streamlining, the permitting and interconnections. Um, there's a ton there that we can leverage to apply to charging infrastructure and interconnections and and permitting, which we've already started to see in high penetration states like California, is becoming a bit of a bottleneck and a costly soft cost added onto uh, the you know the cost of the vehicle or the cost of charging. So those kinds of simple yet uh, optimal leverage opportunities should be, hopefully ripe and uh front of mind for those folks who are doing that important work.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, if there's another thing I can plug that we we've been spending a lot of time advocating for as well is uh, using executive order and uh, budget reconciliation to really make the federal agencies leaders in transitioning to EVs. And that includes the postal service, which is kind of a standalone Um, agency. But committing to electrifying the federal fleet, um, and that includes rental cars for federal employees and federal contractors, uh, we think would be a really great way to uh, transition the used market because rental vehicles comprise a large majority of the used vehicle market and uh, somewhere around 70% of Americans purchase used vehicles rather than new vehicles. So we really need to start Um, figuring out ways to get more EVs into the used market so that they're cost effective um, and people who are medium and lower income individuals can purchase those vehicles. And we think that utilizing federal fleets uh, is a good way to do that.
0: Yes, absolutely. And certainly during the pandemic, we saw a, a rise in the use of fleets for delivery purposes and a lot of businesses are relying on them for, uh, how they conduct their business, so and, an important area of focus, not to be not to be missed.
2: Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Maybe Mike could speak more to the cost savings analysis the 2035 report had for um, heavier duty and medium duty vehicles, um, and the use case being for delivery vehicles. That they because they're on a fixed route uh, and they have charging hubs that they make a lot of sense to electrify right now and the cost savings are kind of already there for those types of vehicles.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in, in the report, um, we didn't dive so much into specific use cases and the, the cost of ownership, um, specifically of, of like medium duty and heavy duty fleets. Um but there is uh, kind of a, a dive, especially into the just total cost of ownership and how it's likely to evolve over time and compare to um, gasoline-fueled or diesel-fueled vehicles. Um, and you know, we find that because electricity is such a less expensive source of fuel, especially if heavy-duty vehicles can take advantage of, say... You know, direct interconnection into the transmission system and, and kind of large user industrial type rates. Um, you know, the the total cost of ownership savings are really significant um, even today, but especially as battery costs continue to fall. Um, but one of the one of the one of the issues um, kind of similar to the issue about how do you get more used vehicles into the market? Like the cost of ownership take time to accrue because the upfront costs are higher. And so, um, our understanding was that, you know, heavy duty trucks, for example, the the buyers aren't looking at the total cost of ownership over the lifetime of the vehicle, say 10, 15, 20 years. They're really concerned about like five years because they may, uh, there's, some amount of turnover that happens in those vehicles. And so, um, yeah, they, they really want to recoup um, and break even on total cost of ownership over a much shorter time frame. So finding ways to, um, you know, finance those vehicles more effectively and, and move some of those cost of ownership savings up front um, is also key. Um, and that may also be true of municipalities and others that, that are looking at um, electrifying fleets with higher upfront costs, but lower costs over time.
0: Absolutely. And some of these uh, big automakers and their announcements, uh, the Ford F-150 Lightning, which I'm really excited about, and uh, GM's announcement that they're going to go all electric by 2035 and phase out gas and diesel, should also have a stimulating effect on uh, cost declines and improving overall affordability. Um, But also, as you mentioned, Kelly, the the importance of used EV incentives and capping incentives for more expensive vehicles really makes sense at this juncture. Uh, We're no longer in the early, early days of EVs. We're in the kind of mid-days. So now it's time to address how do we get these cars accessible to more people but also able to benefit the average American who doesn't buy a a new car no matter what it is. Um, And I'm one of those people. I've... (laughs) I've only bought one new car in my life, and uh, it happened to be a Nissan Leaf. <laughs> um, and I want to pivot maybe to that question. So there are a lot of these transportation policy discussions that center on the importance of equity, uh, both from a standpoint of access, but also ensuring that frontline communities who are overly burdened by transportation pollution and heavy, heavy-duty vehicles traveling through and around their uh, neighborhoods and causing all sorts of uh, public health issues challenges and uh, premature deaths and so on. How, what are you hearing Kelly in the halls of Congress uh, around the focus on equity? How do we integrate the policy levers appropriately so that this remains front of mind as policies are being adopted?
2: That's a great question. Um, and frankly, I, I wish I was hearing more in the halls of Congress, but um I mean, I have some some thoughts on this. Um, first of all, I think when we're talking about how to make sure EVs are accessible to frontline communities and disadvantaged communities, we need to make sure we're engaging those communities rather than prescribing them a solution. So ask the people who are living in these areas um, how they could better be served by electric vehicles, whether that's their own personal vehicles or public transit or ride sharing or micro shuttles or whatever it might be. Um, but in terms of uh, equity and accessibility, uh, I think the, the most short-term thing we can do that would have the biggest impact on air quality emissions that are disproportionately harming uh, lower income and disadvantaged communities are uh, medium and heavy-duty trucks. Um, and there was that science report that came out a, a few months ago showing that uh communities of color are disproportionately burdened specifically by emissions um that are from diesel trucks. So that's particle particle matter, um sorry, particulate matter and uh, NOx, which have been shown to increase mortality. Um, and then aside from that, um, electrifying public transportation, which is uh, cost savings for municipalities. Um, but it disproportionately affects the people who ride public transportation because they're standing, you know, in a cloud of diesel <laughs> while they wait for the bus. Mm. Um, so electrifying buses is a really great way to have an immediate impact. Um, and then as we're thinking more about getting EVs to, uh, to more equitable communities, um, we need to think about access to affordable charging. So access in multi-unit dwellings public chargers for people without any off-street parking, um, as well as getting more EVs into the secondary market like we just talked about. And I want to make the point that this would have a big impact on uh, people who drive for delivery and rideshare, um, who tend to be medium and lower income people, um, making EVs accessible to them so that they can benefit from the cost savings and the emission savings would have a big impact.
0: Um, Yeah. And then there was uh, just last week, I believe, Community Vehicle Charging Infrastructure Act introduced by Senator Markey and several others, which seeks to focus infrastructure uh, in communities to support the various use cases you just identified and um, provide grants to community-based organizations and states to enable it. Enable that. So, it would be great if that legislation got some legs and saw the light of day. Um, but yeah, there's. I mean, I I can definitely say there are a lot of folks uh, across the aisles thinking about these topics, and it would be great to see a holistic package come forth.
1: Sarah, can I just make one one additional point? Just yeah. from the sort of technical findings, um, you know, I, I think that the Standards that EPA considers for um, for for greenhouse gas tailpipe emissions uh, for light duty and heavy duty vehicles. You know, to the extent the agency is, and I think it has so far said it will prioritize environmental justice in the promulgation and enforcement of rules, um, considering setting more stringent emission standards for particularly medium and heavy-duty trucks um, in the next period will be really essential. Um, you know, reaching the 2035 sales target from the 2035 report uh, for heavy-duty vehicles and then, you know, holding it fixed at 100% all the way through 2050 um, ended up avoiding 150% thousand premature deaths because of the reduction, particularly in particulate matter emissions, which, as Kelly alluded to, disproportionately falls on historically marginalized communities already. So, you know, when we think of greenhouse gas emissions reductions and sales mandates, et cetera, that the EPA are considering and setting, um, you know, those are also environmental justice policies. Um, And to the extent we can um, develop tools that help target incentives to, you know, more rapidly phase out the oldest, um, most heavily polluting diesel trucks in the fleet and replace those with electric, we should do that as well.
0: Absolutely. I want to pivot just a little bit to the broader policy trends that you guys are seeing, focusing on and working on. Which of them excite you the most in the transportation space and, and or the electricity space? And we've talked about a few already, but those that you personally and or your organization really uh, feel are going to change the dynamic either politically or change the, uh, the landscape for the EV market. And Kelly, I'll start with you.
2: Thanks. Thanks. Um... There are a couple that come to mind. I'm really excited about everything, but <laughs> a couple that come to mind that I think will really help the policy landscape. And um, the first one is battery recycling. So we have a few battery recycling companies that are members of ours. Um, and I think it's going to be necessary for us to think more about recycling and prioritize recycling in order to scale up to a level that we need to to get to 100% sales. Um, and that will help us you know, shore up our supply chain that will help us protect national security. Um, and environmentally, it's better uh, if we are able to reuse and recycle materials. So the other one I'm really excited about is the momentum that is gaining towards uh, behind the medium and heavy duty vehicle market. Um, and that includes uh, companies of ours, again, like Horse and Arrival that are working on medium duty delivery vehicles. Um, the technology is already there. It's just a matter of getting the right incentives in place for more companies like FedEx to adopt all electric vehicles and getting them on the road. And I think fleets can follow. Um, and I would be really happy to see some cities start to adopt federal fleets for things like trash pickup um, and landscaping vehicles and that kind of a thing um, that are traditionally super noisy um, and smelly diesel trucks. <laughs>
0: Great. Yeah, those are excellent trends and very exciting. Um, I am so excited about the Ford F-150 Lightning. I think it's going to transform the American vehicle market because we know people like driving trucks and they're very functional and they have a lot of value across different market segments. And the fact that we are now seeing an actual vehicle you can you know, pre-order online and they're coming down the pike, um, I think that's going to be a a game changer Um, because I drive in Utah and I got to tell you, there's a lot of trucks on the road. So I'm excited to be able to tell my friends with trucks that there's a, an electric version coming down, coming down the pike. Mike, what about you? What trends are you seeing that are promising and or encouraging that, uh, compel you to think we are on the right track?
1: Yeah. Uh, there are a lot. Um, I don't think that people quite realize how quickly battery costs have fallen and how optimistic a lot of the experts who follow those price tends closely are that they will continue to do so. So that's really the largest uh, reason why the upfront cost of electric vehicles uh, continues to be higher. Than gasoline fuel vehicles on average, and that margin just keeps shrinking every year. You know we're we're gonna really soon cross a threshold where there's price parity, and then electric vehicles will start to be cheaper upfront than than internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, and that's really exciting. Um, it gives me confidence that standards um, that require or lock in vehicle electrification will benefit consumers in the, in the near term. And then even more in the long run, um, it gives me confidence that, you know, what right now, electric vehicles seem only accessible to people with significant means. Um, that narrative is, is likely to change sooner rather than later. Um, so that's really exciting. And then, you know, battery technology as well, the ability to charge more quickly, um, and uh, to be lighter, um, that is continuing to improve, uh, which will improve the range, start to overcome range anxiety, etc. Um, the second one is the sheer number of electric vehicle models that are coming out. And then the companies that y- you know, are fairly mainstream, like GM, um, Volkswagen, Volvo, announcing 100% EV sales targets. Um, there's nobody forcing them to do this they just see it as the the future um, it's way ahead of the standards that the Environmental Protection Agency has promulgated so far so you know they're seeing different standards being promulgated in say the EU and they want to harmonize you know their American business with that but you know just the fact that they're they're putting a stake in that and then that investors are responding positively to that in the markets you know GM stock I think went up quite a bit after they announced this. And, um, I mean, we all have seen sort of what's happening with the Tesla, uh, stock as well. So, um, that's really exciting too. It, It feels like, you know, we're having this debate in the policy circle, you know, how fast can we go? And meanwhile the private market is kind of giving us a signal that they can go as fast as we want them to. Um, so the really big barrier becomes, you know, consumer acceptance and, and, you know setting a mark out there in the future that then I think these companies and supply chains are are really um, ready to meet uh, and that was some of the most interesting findings of that twenty thirty five report um, as well, so that's what's exciting me
0: that's great. Uh, Yeah, and I would add just one more to the list, which is the state activity. We haven't had a chance to dive into that today, and and we're running out of time. But there are already, um, I think now, 15 with Minnesota, including D.C. states that have, um, through the Section 177 authority under the Clean Air Act, have adopted either a low-emission vehicle standard or a a zero-emission vehicle standard modeled after California's and Minnesota became the 15th uh, just uh, in this month. Well, May. Uh, we're now in June. I'm still getting used to that. Um, and, you know, there's still a process underway there to f- to formalize that. But the administrative law judge ruled that the Minnesota Pollution, con- pollution Control Agency's rulemaking process was sound. And the Clean Cars Minnesota Standard uh, comply with state law and and can reduce greenhouse gases and air pollution. So we're seeing more states, rather than wait for federal action and uh, wait for legislation, moving full speed ahead on incentives and infrastructure and standards. And that is another factor that's really pulling and pushing the automakers as well as consumers. So there's a really uh, nice synergy that's happening. But of course, we want to continue to put pressure on Um, federal policymakers who are uh, trying to figure out how to really clean up the air, address climate, improve the economy, and improve public health. Um, You can do it all with transportation and a clean grid. Uh, We are winding down our time today, and this has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate you both, and you bring a tremendous amount of expertise and uh, insight to these complex topics I'll ask you both for your final thought uh, for the listeners. If you had one policy call to action, what would it be? We'll start with you, Mike.
1: My one big message to policymakers is to instill confidence in setting an ambitious federal clean electricity standard. You know, it's something that's going to require a tremendous national effort and really, huge amount of infrastructure investment but the upside is tremendous and the cost of inaction is is unacceptable um you know there's there are other studies not just ours that really support that this is a a good way to go um and it's really essential for laying the foundation for vehicle electrification to be a viable decarbonization strategy so you know it's we we have to decarbonize the grid if we're going to decarbonize our economy. And the sooner we get started on that, you know, the the safer planet will leave to our children and grandchildren. So that's my big, my big policy call. We we have a moment in time and we, we can't waste it.
0: Very compelling. Thanks, Mike. How about you, Kelly?
2: Thanks. Um, I would, I would hone in on the message that the whole world is moving towards electric vehicles, whether or not the United States decides to follow. Um, they will be manufactured and they will be sold. So if we take action now to embrace the build-out of the infrastructure that we need and to bolster our domestic manufacturing capabilities, um, the United States can emerge as a leader in this new technology uh, and show the world that electric vehicles are fun to drive. They they can be convenient, and they really improve everybody's quality of life.
0: Great. Well, you heard it here first, everyone. You've got your marching orders, so go forth and uh, let's let's get it done. Um, thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you both being with me to today. Thanks so much for it's having my me. My pleasure. And uh, folks, join us next time for the last part in the transportation electrification series where we will continue to explore the regulatory policy and societal aspects of this transition to clean electric vehicles and a clean grid. Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan climate policy firm. Our mission is to accelerate clean energy by promoting the most effective energy policies. We provide research and analysis for decision makers to accelerate the transition to a low carbon future. You can find out more about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Please continue to subscribe, follow, share, and give us a review and tag us on social, hashtag ElectrifyThis. As always, I'd like to give a shout out to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the Audio Inn in Salt Lake City. And uh, thank you again for listening and continuing to support this podcast. Uh, Last I heard, we have over 6,000 downloads to date, so we are on a roll, and it's all because of you. So thanks so much. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to Electrify This. Thank uh-huh. you.